Men rising up to end the silence around us about the chains that bind us, to dispel the darkness of illusion with luminous spiritual technologies, to finally become the hero within us all. This is Arise the Honest Man's podcast. I'm Karuna Avatar, and with me is my dear co-host Jai Jagannath, and we are broadcasting at an absurd time <laughs> for a lot of people. We're used to broadcasting at noon EST and now it's like 4 a.m. EST so we don't actually know if anyone's even going to be with us but that's completely all right because we have uh, an amazing person who's joined us today. Um, his name is Dylan Smith and just to give a, a little bit of an introduction for Dylan, um, so he's a certified Ayurvedic practitioner uh, and an holistic health educator. He founded an organization called the Vital Veda Clinic, uh, which is in Sydney, Australia. And he works in very close alignment with uh, the Raju family, a lineage of Ayurvedic um, acharyas, you could say. Um, and uh, he basically aims to uncover the cause of ailments in that like the really like where where does disease really genuinely sprout from um to find that out dylan travels the world and he shares his passion of ancient vedic wisdom uh so that everyone could get the benefit of it enjoy it and experience just complete total holistic bliss and wellness <laughs> so that is dylan great soul i just totally like blew on my trumpet to to uh <laughs> to welcome him into the space and yes so thank you dylan thank you for being with us thank you guys i want i wanted to share this bef before we started but i'll just share it now a friend of mine who's in the ayurvedic marmor world as a coach and, and trainer and healer he sent me your profile about six months ago and was appreciating your authority in this particular realm. And it didn't really register in my psyche because I'm not really part of the world. So I was just like, okay, yeah, cool, whatever. And then I meet Pedro, you know, the guy that does your, <laughs> handles all your scheduling or whatever. And he's like more or less like, well, your brother-in-law or? Yes. <laughs> and I'm just like, how is the world this small? Like. <laughs> Uh, how you know i would meet him kind of randomly on instagram and he reaches out and, and shares this i just thought it was super funny <laughs> and kind of super cool um thank you for joining us today i maybe you can just kind of start us with your story a little bit and how you got involved with ayurveda and working with this raju family like what is this what does it even mean to work with the, the raju family <laughs> Okay, so I think how I got into Ayurveda is essentially through meditation at the roots because my parents started learning uh, Vedic meditation with one of the disciples of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, oh. who was famous for teaching transcendental meditation. And right. they, he, they, my parents learned meditation from uh, one of his, well, one of Maharishi's very, yeah, one of my close disciples. And then as they, and we, I also learned when I was six years old. So we kind of was in, in that. And then, you know, as you learn meditation and as you learn yoga or if you're learning bhakti yoga, whatever it is, you kind of start to explore other realms of the Veda under this umbrella of the Veda, which I like to translate the Veda is the laws of nature. Mm. And there's so many ways to, you know, that the laws of nature express themselves. And one of them is through Ayurveda, the science of life, which is the medical aspect. So... My mother ended up going to the Raju Clinic, which is a family of Ayurvedic doctors that have been healing for generations. 
Mm. And when I was in a teenager and I, that's, that's essentially how I started. That's yeah. There's more to the story, but um, that's how I got introduced to them. And, and I was there and I got inspired by the miraculous healings that were occurring. And um, I was at a point in my life where I learned about the notion of Dharma, which mm. I learned that what is the most evolutionary thing you can be doing right now? And at the time I was studying architecture at university and I decided, hmm, I, I don't feel this is the, the most evolutionary thing I should be doing right now. <laughs> so I, I expressed that. I had this yearning in me to be like, I don't know what to do. Should I be a yoga teacher? And I expressed that to the doctors. I was there at the clinic having treatment and, and they said, come study with us. <laughs> and I just did it. I didn't think much about it. And to your question of what does it be like to study with this family or well, just to quick background to keep it brief but this is a family that you know a lot of ayurveda has been lost right and you know through the muslim invasions through the british mm. invasions even like the british they were cutting the hands off the vedias a vedias ayurvedic physician because they were having the pulse diagnosis right knowledge so there's even in the shastras or the classical texts of ayurveda there's so much that has been lost i was speaking to one of the raju one of my teachers the other day about this university in, I can't remember where it is in India, but it was burning from one of the Muslim invasions for the Mong Mughal invasions is a better historic, um, is what they called them, the, the Mughals. And uh, it was burning for weeks, like this library. There were that many books oh and God. so many, so much Ayurvedic knowledge has been lost. And there's only like, maybe a few, a bunch of, a bunch, a bunch of families in India that have that unbroken lineage of knowledge and, and blessed to, to, um, you know, basically they call them like, they're like my second family and, you know, they're so generous. Wow. It's a very, it's a very interesting way of learning anything because it's very traditional. You know, they, they all learnt when they were three years old, they started learning. But me, I only learned when I was, you know, 21 or i started learning or 22 i started 21 i started learning with them and it was very interesting because i don't have the time to learn like from three years old or seven years old is another milestone when they start really learning even more right it's like i'm on a different schedule i have in the west i have society to attend to a very sick society <laughs> so i can't be here for 12 months of the year like i made it six months of the year and like I can't, you know, I think we're just going to speed up the process. So it's very interesting <laughs> for them as well of like, okay, well, you, you, we, we got to do things a bit differently to adapt to modern times. And I'm still, West, I'm still going through that journey with them. Wow. Whoa. You know, hearing that, the, the first thing that comes to mind, we have a whole set of questions we'd like to get through, but just hearing that so much of the Ayurvedic knowledge has been lost due to, you know, the invasions. Um, that, I guess that contributes to a lot of the skepticism people have around Ayurveda as a real effective means of coming to health. At least, and especially, that's one factor. And the other factor, like I'm in America, and when you, like Ayurveda is very closely associated with the yoga community, and not to be shady, but our yoga community tends to be a little bit kind of shallow or just not having depth of knowledge honestly and depth of embodied knowledge also like practical knowledge and embodied knowledge and they're often promoting ayurveda as well 
and it just comes off as like real like teeny pop you know sort of not having authority or potency so when it comes to like approaching health and you bring up ayurveda it's like almost just immediately dismissed as something that like that's maybe for some old age or ancient culture but for today we have to go allopathic like that's more effective that's more that's more potent that's what's going to work in this day and age and what would be your response to that sort of doubt because i think that's a doubt that even in my own community which is like very devotionally oriented that has the belief that Ayurveda was given from Dhanvantari and Avatar Vishnu. Like we believe all those things. And we also dismiss Ayurveda when it comes to like approaching our health for the, the most part. So how do you approach someone who would have a doubt about the efficacy and potency of Ayurveda with all these factors at play? Uh, can I just add to that? I just, I just want to insert something briefly just before that exactly and maybe just ask you dylan to give us like just give us like a really essential description of what ayurveda because there's a lot of people that like know oh it's the vedic science of health but like what is really the core philosophy the essential tenets um that make ayurveda what it is so that everyone just knows like what it is that we're talking about here so that we can get a sense of its gravity in hearing like the core definition, the essence of, of what it is. I, I love both of your passions. Um, and Karuna, I love, love your, your tone. But so basically Ayurveda is a Sanskrit word. It comes from two roots. Ayush means life and Veda means science or knowledge. So Ayurveda is the science of life. Okay, the science of life, it's such a broad and holistic body of knowledge which governs everything in life. And to summarize it so quickly, like the, the essence of Ayurveda is to align you with nature. Okay, what does align you with nature mean? Well, there's so many levels to that. It's align you with your truest nature, your deepest nature, which is big mm -hmm. self, capital S self, absolute, pure field of unified consciousness. Then there's your human nature, like what's which is, of course, it's all connected, but, you know, align you with your natural health and mm -hmm. saying that everyone has the birthright and the state of perfect health within them. So it's essentially aligning you to your state of health and it's reminding your body and your mind and your nervous system and your emotional heart and everything, reminding your body and mind what it is to be healthy. So it's not so much, you have a disease, I'm going to get rid of your disease. You have this metabolic pathway, this methylation pathway is blocked, I'm going to unblock it. You have this excess hormone, I'm going to increase that hormone. You have this parasite, I'm going to target this parasite and then create health. No, it's what's your health? I'm going to look at your health and enliven that. And then when I enliven your health, that sorts out any, everything. Mm, mm. And recognizes so, that that's within everyone. Mm. Yeah. What I'm getting there is that Ayurveda is a very, um, it's a very proactive science, whereas like allopathic modern medicine is very reactive. It's like, oh, there's something wrong. Let's destroy it, you know, where Ayurveda is like, no, let's, let's enter into a state of complete uh, equilibrium to begin with. And we maintain that so that we don't encounter these things in the first place, right? Yes. Yes, that's right. It's both, you know, it's let's prevent. Definitely, that's a huge component. And that's the priority in Ayurveda is to prevent. You know, there's a heyam dukanam. Uh, one of these shlokas means avert the danger which has not yet come. Mm. 
So <laughs> it's stepping in so early in the disease process. And then, of course, if there is the thing, they will do it. But the way they do it is rather than targeting, it's by re-establishing self. It's by re-establishing mm. that person's ability to heal themselves and giving them the space and the comfort so that they can do that. Like the, the definition, the word for health in Ayurveda is swastya. And swastya literally means established in self. Mm. So, you know, I have a patient with 18, this, uh, I saw a couple of weeks ago, 18 tumors in her brain. You know, Whoa. yes, we can target the brain and like she's getting the, uh, the, the pinpoint targeted radiation therapy. But the Ayurveda approach is to just give her body the space and comfort and some, you know, free from some side effects and the ability to heal itself and trigger it, trigger the immune system and trigger all these things. So it's it's about, yeah, getting to the core of, of their innate healing cap capacity and triggering that, working on that, working on the root, basically. Mm. So that that's a good transition point to the question I was asking also. Like that example specifically, someone's come to you with 18 tumors and you know, if you present it to the layperson and you say, Well, we're gonna take them to our Ayurvedic doctor, they would just practically scoff at that. You know, like what what will Ayurveda do to help that? So how so do you is, remove these sorts of doubts? Well, it's really interesting when you were expressing that of what you were experiencing in America, because my initial thoughts were they haven't met a quality Ayurvedic doctor or practitioner because when they do, like you meet my teacher and he feels your pulse and he tells you your whole family history and, and your parents' <laughs> history just from your pulse and not even speaking to you and tells you specifically what diseases are on your mum's side and specifically what diseases are on your dad's side. Like you don't question that. And, and you don't even have to have, like just being around them, you can feel their power, their healing. It's, it's healing mm. just being around them. So I think... You know, that's that's the result of what's, as you were alluding to and expressing of what's happening in the yoga community of how it's kind of made it into that, I can't remember the word you used, like that shallow. Um, and I think, you know, that's unfortunate that that's their impression. So, you know, eventually they'll have the karma to meet someone or to hear from someone speak where it inspires them and it triggers, actually there's some value in here. So... You know, I, I don't have to convince anyone. I'm just going to share whoever's worthy to hear it and whoever's mm. curious. And, you know, that's their karma if they take it on and, and obtain this knowledge. And it's, it's, it's so powerful because the funny thing is we get people who have been to allopathy over and over again and it's not working and they're sick of it and they've tried everything and then they come mm. to Ayurveda. Mm. So it's like last resort, I've tried everything. But, and, you know, that's in some cases, like that's not the ideal because uh, mm. it's usually deep in their disease process. Right. But, you know, then, then that's when even these deep cancer patients, you know, that's really like the hope for them is, is these things. I mean, you look at the, you can look at the chemotherapy success rates, like I think it's less than 3% healing rate. So that's the wow. standard thing in cancer. And when you look at cancer, I mean, that, that's, there's been over a trillion dollars spent from it. And you look at the decades of, of research and, and uh, research, investment. Right. Well, it is research, but it, it's, it's such a uh, not the, it's clearly not an effective approach because mm. they, they haven't really gotten anywhere in all these decades and trillion dollars later. Not that Doesn't, it's bad, but yeah. 
Dylan, I, I, I just have something that I'm super fascinated by that I need to know about right now. This, okay, so like this whole pulse reading thing, right? <laughs> the fact that, that someone is able to tell that much simply by feeling your pulse, it's, it's very difficult for me to conceive of that. Okay, let's compare it to, let's compare it to like another Vedic science, like Jyotish, for instance, right? Like if you, if you draw up someone's birth chart, there's, there's there's a lot of like information that you can draw conclusions from you know there's like there's a lot of intricacies a lot of kind of like nuances and you can you can really you know you could see a lot by seeing someone's birth chart but like just like feeling someone's pulse and like knowing their entire family history of disease like what is up with that like could you just could you could is it like a mystical ability or like is is it is it a is it a skill that you can cultivate can you just give us like some yeah. insight <laughs> sounds a little to... mythological right <laughs> yeah it's not that mystical it's more of a skill that you can cultivate and mm. you know the example i gave you was from my my gurus who you were asking about earlier one of the things that they're world famous for is pulse diagnosis mm. and especially the, the old elder brother it's a family and the elder brother is you know he he's felt 150 he sees 100 to 150 patients a day because of their pulse. He doesn't need to speak with them much. Um, he doesn't need to ask them about the health because he knows it all in the touch of 30 seconds or less. So he can just do that and, and know about that whole physiology. Um, and it's actually not a mystical. It's not so much an intuitive thing. It's more of an actual scientific process, which happens with practice and also they have cultivated siddhis in this so these mm. are like perfected human capabilities so they definitely have the siddhis with the pulse i practice pulse diagnosis but i'm not a fraction in my capability to them mm. uh, but for me and for other many other aerobic practitioners it's very useful uh, i'll be honest the pulse is not a lot of people get it uh, you know even the aerobic practitioners you know my, my teacher has taught thousands of doctors around the world and very few of them actually got it and there's mm. various reasons for why no they they don't really get to get it and and one of the reasons is the practice and the the uh i guess trust in the process as well because people get impatient and it's it's all about practice but um so the the way it works is because i mean there's so much to it but your heart is circulating blood in every single cell in your body within you know under under a couple minutes okay and your heart also is your emotions okay and your most your heart is your emotions which comes into the blood and also your heart is the seat of what we call an ayurveda ojas and ojas means your vital essence it's your it's a biocelestial liquid substance that resides in the heart Bio-celestial. <laughs> I, I also was like, wow. That sounds very <laughs> it is. It's, a, it's nine drops in the heart. And it is the, the factor for your life. And if you mm -hmm. didn't, if you lost a drop of ojas in the heart, you would be dead. And then there's the secondary ojas, the upper ojas, which from that source of ojas, it circulates throughout the body and is responsible for your energy, your vitality, your reproductive capability, um your immune immunity so that also is coming through the pulse and mm -hmm. ojas is also the junction of consciousness and body 
So it's connected to these subtle aspects of your body as well. Just like Jyotish, through someone's birth chart, you can see into the subtle realms of their life through the pulse you can also see. So that's kind of some explanations of how it's manifesting into the radial pulse. But there's so much, so many layers to it, and it's it's not a science. It's not really a theoretical science. It's a completely experiential science. So that's mm. another thing of why it's hard for doctors to learn because it's not about knowing this is what you have to look for. This is what we're teaching you. It's actually or an experiential science of what do you feel after feeling 20, 30, 40, 50 pulses a day, and then you know what? How do you report? What do you report? What are you reporting? Oh, that's interesting. Well, yes, this is actually that, what you're feeling. So it, it this is the whole process. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I guess that's true of many of these sciences in the Vedas. It's less empirical and more experiential. Yeah, and that's why it's true. hard for people to embrace them because they don't want to use their own life as the, you know, the laboratory for gaining direct perceptual knowledge. They prefer to remain one step removed in this sort of abstract theoretical framework and just force that framework on everything despite the fact that it's not working. What's also mm -hmm. difficult is that it's it takes work. Like you <laughs> you have to live it, you know, you have to really like embody the thing. You it's not it's there are no there are no quick fixes. You need to have like very disciplined practices. On that note, um Dylan, I'd, I'd just love to get sort of like a sense of um, like how you apply the teachings every single day, like a kind of a, a day in the life of Dylan as like an Ayurvedic sadhaka and practitioner. Like what is your practice? Well, it's different for me what, what I personally do and from what I recommend to my patients because, you know, the beauty of Ayurveda is – it's, it's all based on principles and it's principles of how to live in tune with nature, thus your own human nature and thus perfect mm. health. And that the reason why principles are so important is because it's various principles to apply to different individuals. So I'm Dylan living in Sydney, Australia in the winter. You know, you're living in US in the summer in New York City. I, I, are you in, where are you, Jay? I'm, I'm in the I'm in New York. He's in South. Africa. in New York. I'm in Johannesburg, South Africa. Yeah. Okay, so you know, you, I don't know if you're in the city, but you say, say you're in New York City. You're in an urban environment. You know, say you're in India. You have these vegetables growing. You know, you have these herbs growing. Maybe you're a Japanese who's grown up on soy their whole life, and so is their forefathers. So it's utilizing the. It's not saying this is for everyone and this is for everyone. It's actually all about the principles and what habitat are you in? What stage of your life are you in and what do you have around you what's and what's unique about you but of course there are some general principles of Ayurveda and I, I can share if you asked since you asked about me I will kind of base it around me so the first you know in Ayurveda routine is an important thing for an individual you can say that the main ways I'll implement treatments for again not just to cure disease but to prevent and to live life full of vitality because that's what Ayurveda is also about it's not just about fixing diseases it's about promoting vitality right. and health which leads to prevention is a few things one is diet the other is lifestyle which includes routine and daily routine as well as seasonal routine and then some herbs as well you can implement herbal and also some treatments some body therapies and then you can even extend with the subtle treatments like the Jyotish implementing and the remedies for that and 
the Vastu, the Vedic architecture, so many things. It, it's all connected. The yoga, the meditation, all that. So, you know, let, uh, let's go into routine. So it's an important thing to have routine because your whole body is run on clocks. Every organ, every cell, this is what the 2017 Nobel Prize was won for. It was won for that circadian medicine. Our whole mm. body is run on clocks. Okay, look at whatever, like look at your hormonal system. How are your energy levels? How are your adrenal glands functioning? How are your sex hormones functioning? How is your reproduction? How is your sex drive? How is your thyroid? How is your metabolism? How is your sleep? How is your energy ability to re regenerate energy on a cellular level? This is all run on clocks. These are all the endocrine system, the hormonal system, which is secreted in cycles, in rhythms. So nighttime melatonin, that's antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, rejuvenating. You know, in the daytime, it's more cortisol. In the in the daytime, in the middle of the day, it's agni. It's it's metabolism. It's fire. It's digestion time. It's so the whole Ayurveda is run on clocks and the whole system. So it's important to honor those clocks. And I think the 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 first thing is to wake up. You know, wake up before sunrise. Ayurveda says to ideally wake up before sunrise or with, or with the sun, but really ideally before and. You know, there's many reasons for that, and the reasons mainly is because, you know, before sunrise, the the word we call it is the Brahma Mahurta or the Brahmin Mahurta, and right. Mahurta means time period, and Brahma means totality, so it's the the time of totality, that's that time between sunrise where everything is closer towards transcendence, and anything you do then has greater power. That's why. Yogis will meditate then and, and, and do yoga then. And when you wake up, you capture that power because everything is like just waking up. It's that subtle. It's that transcendental field. It's the air and space element. And if you wake up with that, you get such energy. It's We call the vata time of the day. The air and space element is dominant. And you keep that. That stays with you throughout the day. And that energy is full of creativity. It's full of a greater intelligence. Whether if you sleep in more, the more you sleep in, and everyone listening knows this, although you're in the bed for longer, you think you're getting more rest. Actually, you're going into the kapha time, which is the earth element. And that earth element is heaviness, sluggishness. It's kapha. So the more you sleep in, the more sluggish you feel. That fatigue just compounds. If you get up before sunrise, you just have this energy that day. So that's the first and foremost thing in the Ayurvedic daily routine, which we call dinacharya is wake up before sunrise. And look, when I said we have to apply to different people, you know, the other day I saw a patient who was a who was a computer addict. He would go to bed around 4 a.m. every night and wake <laughs> up at midday because he was addicted to cryptocurrency trading. Mm. So for him, I'm not going to say wake up at sunrise, go to bed before 10, which is what Ayurveda says. It's about... And generally with habits and addictions, it's, it's Ayurveda even talks about addictions and habits in the Shastras. It's a certain mythology of, a methodology of slowly bringing back to your natural rhythms. Mm. So that's the first thing, wake up before sun. And then there's the thing of eliminate the waste. So brush your teeth, scrape your tongue. Your tongue has a lot of toxins on it, which you have to get off within the first three minutes of waking up. Eliminate your bowels every morning before you know, eating especially and before any coffee this is one thing again with the rhythms of time what is the rhythms of your elimination 
people don't know that proper elimination means to have a good bowel motion before they eat breakfast or before they drink coffee a complete one and then you know you can do your meditation do your sadhana do your yoga uh, it also says to do self abhyanga which is self oil massage so like we bathe every day which is also part of the daily routine which we call snan bathing our body and washing our body not only do we have to wash our skin but we have to put oil on it and give ourselves a massage and this does so many things it it pacifies our nervous system that's perhaps the most noticeable thing straight away you, your nervous system just feels so much more calm because your skin has more nerve endings than anything in the body and you put mm -hmm. oil on it and you just feel this calmness especially for people with anxiety or sleep issues or oversensitivity and particularly when there's things like virus genetic material being going around and bacteria going around this abhyanga is like a shield it's like kvach you know mm -hmm. karna from the mahabharat the he had this shield on him this is what we call abhyanga it's a kvach it's mm -hmm. arma it protects because whenever you're dealing with for example viruses the first stage of any virus is called the energetic periphery mm. it means something on the outside is trying to get inside right mm. in this case a genetic message so this abhyanga this shield is a shield so you before your shower just like we wash ourselves we have to get in this habit of oiliating this it, it prevents <laughs> so much it helps the joints yeah. it helps move the lymph the blood circulation um, you can see on my website a poster, free poster on how to do it. And then we take our shower and then we go about a day. I mean, there's there's so much. There's, I don't know how much detail you want. Then there's, <laughs> I'll, I'll just add one more key thing of that is to eat in accordance to the sun. Mm. So a big concept in Ayurveda is, is Agni, which is digestive fire. And our digestive fire is regulated by the sun. So when the sun's the highest... Our digestion is the strongest. So to have the main meal at midday and the lightest meal at evening, because when you're about to go to sleep, you don't want to be digesting food. You want to be regulating hormones and secreting melatonin and detoxifying the liver. So many vital mechanisms which are occurring at night, you want to reserve your biological energy for those mechanisms rather than giving it to your heavy dinner your cheese mm. and paneer at the Hare Krishna temple late at night. Occasionally it's fine, but like <laughs> people are getting that habit. You know, New York, New York City, when I first went to New York City, um, literally the, the main treatment I was telling people was just eat early and, and <laughs> eat light. And it fixed so many of their issues because sleep is your main biorhythm. And if you cannot yeah. get sleep right, how can you expect to heal anything? And it's mm. not just about, yeah, I sleep throughout the night. How do you feel when you wake up? You know, the, the key indicator of sleep is when you go to bed, you fall asleep basically straight away within one to two minutes. And that you stay asleep throughout. Mytho <laughs> mythological. <laughs> it's so possible. <laughs> and then you sleep throughout the night and not wake up once. And when you wake up in the morning, you basically jump out of bed with energy. That's a proper indicator. Yeah, I've never experienced that. <laughs> well, there's some things which we can share. One of them being the Abhyanga, that self-oil massage. You try that, we'll see. And of course, going to sleep before 10 because, again, before 10 is the cuffer time. Same as the morning cuffer was 6 till 10 a.m. heaviness time. It's also 6 till 10 p.m. heaviness time. So you want to hitchhike on that heaviness and mm. let that take you throughout the night. Whether if you waited till yeah. after 10 p.m., it's fire time, it's pitta time, metabolism, hormones are moving. It's, everything is more on fire 
it's harder mm. to get the deeper sleep. So you'd think, mm. I'm staying up late. Shouldn't I be more tired and get it sleep more like a log? Actually, you want to sleep like a log, you've got to hitchhike on the cuff of time before 10 p.m. And that will take you throughout the night for deeper rest. Totally. This totally. is so fascinating. You know, um, I feel like this might be a good transition point. This Agni point. So we entitled this episode Poor Digestion and the Loss of Sovereignty. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I thought it was I thought it was a clever title. I, I prided myself on the title. I thought it was really good. And that's because um uh I heard that this digestion is like a really critical feature of Ayurvedic methodology to health. And so and I heard there were like, I don't know if there are like three agnes or a different the, the concept of agni is not just like fire, right? So I was wanting to know if you could break that down like what is the role of digestion in the methodology of Ayurveda? And um, yeah, how does that relate to our health? You've touched it. Maybe you can expand on it a little bit. So Agni is fire and it's specifically, Agni is the transformer. It's the metabolizer. Mm. And we have actually 13 Agnis at least. And then there's those are the main Agnis. Then there's so many Agni can be seen in every cell and doing a certain role, but the main Agni, which we all hear about, is the digestive fire, the mm -hmm. Jatara Agni, which is in the gut. And that, of course, metabolizes and transforms food and water and drinks and also air and viruses and bacteria and any pollutant. So that is really two things happen from the Agni, two results manifest from after Agni, which is the fire, gets the food or mm. any substance. And one is it turns to a thin fluid, which is called rasa. It's a thin fluid which, which gives our body energy and nutrients and maintains the longevity of our body because it's, it's feeding the tissues, it's feeding our flesh, and it's making us prolong our life by maintaining maintenance. This is Vishnu. This is Dhammantri. Mm. This mm. is like maintenance operator is maintaining that which is relevant. So this is what this thin fluid does. Ideally, when you're digesting food, if it's good food and you have a good digestion, you're turning it into a thin fluid, which is giving you nutrients and energy. The mm. second thing that may come from that is it doesn't turn to a thin fluid. It turns to a thick fluid, a thick and sticky fluid, which we call ama. And this mm. thick, sticky fluid can lodge anywhere in the body. It depends on the person. You know, it can lodge in your blood and manifest as skin diseases or blood disorder. It can manifest in your joints. Joints are a typical place because this thick fluid gets to a joint and it can't pass through. Mm. So it sticks there and then you get joint pain or you know rheumatoid arthritis or osteoarthritis, any of these things. It can come in the lungs is another common place where AMA will enter because there's so much space in the lungs and then you feel respiratory disorders, you have excess mucus. It can go anywhere. It depends on the person, where their weak spots are, what are they prone to. So, and this ama is considered the cause of mostly all diseases, you can mm. say. Not, mm. not every time, but basically all. There's some shlokas which say it is. And so, because that ama is not just causing digestive complaints, as I said, it can manifest anywhere in the body. It can manifest in the brain as plaque and cause Alzheimer's, like so many different things. And so that's the importance of having good digestion because... You want to be, we are in a world full of toxins. Um, we have, 
you know, even the organic kale you're buying has coal dust mine being blowed on it from the coal mines, you know, however down the track on the farms. And then we've got glyphosate. I mean, especially in the US, you have so much glyphosate in the rain, which is the, the chemical pesticide used in Roundup, which is extremely prevalent in the rain and, and also in other places of the world. So we're, we've just inevitable have a lot of toxins, which is, which is just the way we're in now. And then there's other toxins. These are just the ones which enter the digestive tract. Um, and we need to be able to metabolize them. Mm. And we need to have a strong digestion. So, and also the foods, you know, the foods, unless you're eating organic, which is, you know, you can eat good food, but, you know, it's increasingly harder to get good quality food and organic, and especially when we're dealing with staples like grains and legumes, yeah. it's harder mm. to get. So, you know, really being able to have a good, good agony for these things. Just very briefly, Dylan, it seems to me like our world is so toxic, just literally, that like being genuinely healthy is like a super niche thing, you know? Like, <laughs> like how viable is it for like people in general to be truly healthy in such a toxic world? Okay, this is a beautiful point because let's just uh, elaborate more on that dark reality and then i'm going to bring light to it so we no doubt have a full of epidemics i mean one in two men will get cancer in their life one in three women will get cancer in their life autoimmune conditions is huge autism used to be one in ten thousand now it's around one in 37 infertility oh i cannot tell you it's probably the, the biggest thing i see in my clinic these days you know, that's because my teachers, infertility experts and everything. But, you know, the, the world is just going infertile, men and women, even men more so. So there's huge epidemics. I mean, it can go on macular degeneration, premature blindness. And then let's talk about neurodegeneration, Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's. You know, people think it's normal for their mother or their grandmother to get Alzheimer's. <laughs> yeah, because she's old. That's why. That, yeah. They expect that. They expect for a 70-year-old, an 80-year-old, 90-year-old to go into the old age home with dementia. But it is not normal. It's mm. not natural. It's becoming the norm. Like you said, Kumar, it's becoming the norm. But when you look at the statistics, it is very uninspiring. But I invite <laughs> everyone yeah. here listening. I mean, look, this is a conscious thing. And I don't know how much you deal on the physical body and the health but this is that you guys definitely look into consciousness and i invite you all listening to be part of those the statistics that are healthy mm. and the trend is it is becoming a minority it's leading towards that especially exactly. with these days right now you know with this pandemic you know look at the pandemic there are so much worse health epidemics right now than 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 this virus you know, there's so many more killers, cancer, diabetes, it goes on and on. So I invite everyone listening, and I'm not saying you're going to have perfect health, but you can be strong to, you know, it's nothing wrong with getting sick here and there and getting some disease. And a lot of, most people have chronic diseases that they've grown up, they have a weak spot within them. That's fine. It doesn't mean it's going to be fully rectified, but having the capability to be able to mitigate that and essentially transcend that it doesn't mean this is the importance of consciousness and mind 
and your mm. and your sadhana practices because you're never going to have a perfect body you're never going to have perfect digestion you're never going to have perfect skin but does that make you suffer mm. so this is the role of consciousness of saying this is just a body i mean of course i have to honor my body it's part of me but you know am i going to really be bound to that or can i go beyond that so that's why consciousness is king so it's it, it is harder it's not harder but it's it takes more more a little more um knowledge let's say to be sattva. able to be healthy more sattva absolutely mm. yeah. it's a rarity so, my friends it's it's, rarity. it's a rarity but it's so it's so attainable and enjoyable mm. and it just takes a bit of knowledge you know and i can feel it with you kumar like a lot of these things that i say and i haven't given that much action steps i mean given the abhyanga given some routine stuff i've given a bit but there's so much you can learn and i'm a big thing big proponent of don't do these things because i told you or because your health practitioner told you do them because you enjoy it start experimenting with this and experiencing what you feel with it start experiencing health like people have lost the like the experience of health so mm. you know it's fine if you want to if you like to be in that certain state of consciousness, a certain state of consciousness where you don't think about it much and you just like to do whatever you do. But, you know, I suggest you try a little bit of what it is to feel healthy. It's pretty awesome. I mean, really, it's it comes with happiness and bliss and everything else that really people really want. So have a go and you'll start living this way, not, not with a single strain. It's actually with complete joy. And, you know, you want to do this thing because you enjoy it. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, I feel you. I was wondering a little bit, going, I'm going back a little bit, I guess. The, you were talking about 13 Agnes and Agni mm. being this like transformative or metabolic part. And I was curious about, are there Agnes that relate more to like subtle parts of our existence as well that need to be looked at in order to help us digest, I guess, more subtle aspects of our being? Absolutely. So, you know, when we look at the Jatara Agni, which we looked at the digestive fire, that can be correlated with, you know, hydrocolic acid, which is a, which is a fire acid and digestive enzymes, which are fiery and actually process food but yes there are subtle agnis the agni in our mind for example is that which metabolizes and transforms any stimuli any sensory stimuli so you know us three could be watching a horror movie and you know never J jaya is very scared and freaking out and flooding with stress chemicals and you know maybe kumar is full of bliss and like Karuna. endorphins. Karuna, Karuna. sorry. Karuna, Karuna. yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 sure, sure, sure. Sure, I, I, I get, okay, okay. And and what would you, what would your reaction be then? <laughs> well, usually I usually give two examples. So mine could be um, <laughs> just bored and, and not paying anything attention. Okay. So it's it's all the same movie and it's all the same eyes. You know, we, we're seeing the same thing, but how do we metabolize that? Mm. And that goes with now, like more than ever, like, how about for now like the i could right now you know the beach is closed they've put fence up because they're trying to prevent people from looking and and, and i jump the fence with my partner and then we get caught by a policeman and she's stressing out and freaking out and full of stress chemicals and me i'm just inwardly smiling and just laughing at it 
and getting some bliss from it. So again, <laughs> same stimuli, but how are we both metabolizing? And you know, mm. this can go to stresses like how does your the way that your boss treats you, the way that your mother screams at you, your partner screams at you, like whatever it is um, that the government um, is so much trying to attack you or however you feel like what's your perspective how you're metabolizing it so we say that none nothing is really a stress it's really how you metabolize it and experience it and that's, that's ugly. super fascinating i okay 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 uh we need to get into some like metab <laughs> metabolization metabolics <laughs> metabolic i think metabolic no, no. is the word no no guys just humor me for a second <laughs> like that like mental digestion tactics and strategies right because yeah. dylan everyone i'm sure you encounter this and i think we're all victims to 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 such a large extent like so much sensory input on the daily through tech you know like mm -hmm. god like the amount of images and just conversations so much that has to be digested every day and it just seems like if you want to kind of practically keep up in the world like you just got to stay on top of all the tech developments and you know if you want to stay relevant in your working life like it's just it, it seems like the world isn't offering us too much of a choice unless you're in a very sort of special career path where you can steer clear from it so like how do we how do we deal with all this because i find like you were saying about sleep man i go to sleep i go i go and lie in bed and my mind is like and it takes like a while to calm down or you know sometimes i journal but sometimes i don't know like sometimes the journaling doesn't matter anyway point is like how do we deal with all the stimuli you know and yeah this is actually corinna's question is actually a lot of the inspiration for the title that I came up with for the show. Like how do, yeah, how do you digest or metabolize all this sort of input? And for me, that's causing like a loss of sovereignty where I have to indulge addictions because I'm not able to digest the world. Yeah. So I think the first and foremost thing is there's so many, so many things you can do for this, but the foremost thing is to be established in yourself. And your true self, you know, dharma? The, the dharma comes with that, but it's even more foundational than that. You know, the the number one summary, if you had to sum the Vedas in one verse, it's Yogastha Kurum Karmani, established in being, wow. then perform action. So before you're performing action, whatever action it is, your work, you reading the news, you reading your phone, you have to be established in being, because. Mm. What is being? Being is that absolute unified field of pure consciousness. That which is the unified field which underlies everything and everyone and every single thing. You are that. So you have to be established in that, connected to that. Because if you, you know, it's, it's one thing to intellectually know. I am the universe. We are all one. But to actually tangibly experience that is another thing. And by the way, it's really not a hard thing to tangibly experience that and know that in yourself. And when you know that and you're especially feeling that and experience that on a daily basis, 
And they say, if you're enlightened, you're experiencing that 24-7, every second of your life. But if you're experiencing on a daily basis and you're, you know, you know you are the universe, you directly experience that, nothing can make or break you. And these, whatever comes up on your phone or your newsfeed is just, you know, what's a little pandemic where a government is exercising tyranny and, you know, people are dying and getting, you know, experimented on. What's that on a, in a little blue ball going around this little sun in a little galaxy? Like you are the universe. What is this little thing? So when you experience that, you know, when you really identify and experience universal nature, those things aren't as binding to you. So they're not karmic. You know, mm. the, the, the information that you're receiving does not bind. doesn't mean you're not sensitive to it. It just doesn't stick with you for long. This is the same thing with the stressful situation. If you get shouted out by a government authority and whipped, whatever it is, like, yes, it can traumatize one and for stay in their cells. But if you have that foundation of being established in being, it, it doesn't last long at all. So how do you establish in being? The first and foremost thing is to meditate twice a day for 20 minutes approximately. Um, you know, it's so important. It's like we sleep and we eat and we brush our teeth. We also have to bring our mind to a de-excited state and experience that being, experiencing mm. your absolute nature, which is very easy to do in meditation. If you spe especially get a technique, like a transcendental technique, it's it's honestly like what I uh, practice, Vedic meditation. It's, it's You see it now with people who learn. It's, it's easy. They can quickly and effortlessly experience. So meditation, whatever technique works for you, um, and which allows you to transcend the body and mind and for a moment experiencing that pure field of unmanifest, that may, increases that as a normalization. That normalizes mm. that state, which is really your true state. So that's, mm. the, that's like the number one. And that, that will make the biggest difference in the quickest way, in the easiest way. Because that's it's... So that's sorry to cut you off. I didn't mean to. Um, it's just fascinating to me that you say that because... You know, in, in bhakti tradition, because we're bhakti practitioners, you know, that's how we're supposed to start our day. We, we rise at the Brahma Mahurta and we become established in self, according to how we understand that, through our own practices of japa, sadhana, and other forms of um, worship or bhajan. And I just feel like in our community, I'm sure this is true of all spiritual practitioners, I guess what happens is we have these like really high ideals of what that's supposed to do for us. So unless we're experiencing the highest ideal from our practices, we feel like it's not having any effect. And we start to get like impatient with the practice and kind of fall away from it. And then I guess we lose our ability to deal with the world. But just hearing you like, it's very easy. You're saying it's very easy. And I'm, I'm just laughing at that because I'm like, what? <laughs> but it's very easy just you know, do your so meditation, easy. just do your meditation practice. And that just gives you already that healthy starting point of I'm the witness to the world. I'm not really the world. It's, you know, or whatever. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's make it's, that's why twice a day is key even more than once, because it's, it's not the process of meditation that we're looking for. We're not, as you said, we're not like wanting these huge experiences. Actually, it's not at all the, we don't judge a meditation by the meditation, the experience in meditation. We judge it by outside. Mm -hmm. Like, how do we feel outside? And the point of twice a day is 
It's about integrating meditation with activity. So meditate in the morning for 20 minutes. Go about your day. Meditate in the afternoon for 20 minutes. Then go about the rest of your day into your evening. And then meditation activity, meditation activity, meditation activity. And you start to blend the two. You start feeling that unified state of pure calm, absolute tality. And mm. that you start experiencing your waking state. That's why twice a day is important. If you do here and there, you're like kind of dealing with a bit of stress, but you want to start making that the reality. And that's essentially like you can say a gradual process of enlightenment and all enlightenment really is, is experiencing that unified, it's unity consciousness. It's knowing in any, every single moment and directly experiencing that is me, you, you know, this beanie is mine and that microphone is me, like everything is me. So it's just a gradual merge of those two states, the, the transcendental state and the waking state. But that's the that's the number one thing, and then number you know, two, <laughs> there's heaps of things. So I'll say, especially for the sleep, okay, if you're having that overactive, overstimulated mind at night, which is so key, a few things. One is go to sleep before 10 p.m. because after 10 you get that second, mm. you get that fire time. It's like your second wind. You will be more active. Yeah. Your mind will be more active. Totally. And and de-excite totally. before sleep. So a few ways to de-excite, or let's remove the cause. You know, are you how how close are you looking at your screen before you sleep? Mm. Okay, no, it doesn't. So that we've got two problems here. One, we've got the news and the social media and all the stuff that you're reading about. But then there's the blue light, just the blue light itself. Even if you're watching a beautiful lecture, which has its benefits on bhakti yoga or anything, it's that blue light which is. The, the light which comes from a screen which is telling your brain that it's midday and then you try to go to sleep and your brain's like well, hold on i just what what information hit my retina was the light temperature of a midday sun so i'm not going to secrete melatonin for four hours and what happens when i don't secrete melatonin because by the way you need four hours of darkness before melatonin comes so without mm -hmm. melatonin you have a busy mind and you have a non-restful sleep so that's another way to de-excite. And what people can do is they wear blue light blocking glasses. You may have seen those, those orange black glasses. Yeah, yeah. These are also, I also have. Yeah, so, so you, what you have looks like a, either a daytime lens or a, or a weak, you know, you, they wanna, you need them to look orange. There's mm -hmm. a lot of marketing gimmicks. But then there's also the daytime ones which are clear like that. But you want the, the orange ones. And literally I have people who wear that for two hours before sleep and they sleep better like significantly better it's because melatonin needs darkness before it comes you can't just watch tv in bed and go to sleep and expect the sleep to happen it takes four hours for the hormones to kick in so that's one thing another thing is another way to de-excite is give yourself a foot massage like i mentioned that abhyanga the whole body that's another one you know you could do abhyanga in the evening before you shower and i guarantee you'll sleep like a baby or you can just in addition to your sh your massage of the day at night, so simple, like try this tonight, is just if you're a man, massage your right foot first with oil for a couple minutes and then massage your left foot. Or if you're women, do it the other way around and just massage your feet with oil and just, you know, give it a, however you want to do it yourself for a couple minutes on each foot. That's it. And go to sleep and and see. It's just deep side. Very, very nice. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, these are some great. things. Yeah and, yeah. and I just like want to emphasize the, you know, that the amount of stimuli you're giving yourself, like start to practice some um, te tech detoxes, you know, mm. really question, are you 
look at your screen time going on and what what's what's irrelevant what's what can you cut down on um start to do some tapasya some surrendering of preferences and mm. do 40 days of no instagram um whatever it is you can you can do so yeah Dylan, what do you make of all the <laughs> weakness in the world? Like, we we got a we we got a sort of like a generation of young men who are really struggling to find like healthy expression of masculinity in the form of self discipline, proper self responsibility like just like the actual focus and clarity of mind to be regulated whatever because like everything that you're recommending is very it's like very it's very sattvic you know and i feel like sattva is for a lot of people quite inaccessible they're just kind of too weak or bewildered or whatever it may be to be able to access that so with that being said like how does how would you say does good digestion relate to like a proper practice of self responsibility for the individual right like and beyond that like our sense of agency and autonomy and like creative output in the world the ability to like show up be disciplined be regulated like that i think it's just implementing whatever you can and experimenting with these sattvic practices because ultimately the way to get rid of the rajas or the tamas is not to like say okay i'm a man and i'm doing this drug or i'm doing this bad food habit or i'm sleeping bad i have to reduce this or stop this or stop the phone at night you know instead of trying to remove those tamasic or rajasic aspects bring in the sattva and it doesn't have to be these you know intense sattvic practices of meditating for two hours and doing 13 surya namaskars all these things just just gradually bring sattva in and experiment with it this is what i'm saying like right. like enjoy the process like say oh i'm going to try massage my feet tonight and i'm going to try do no phones for two hours before sleep i'm going to you know if i naturally get up tomorrow at sunrise i'm just going to get up and i'm not going to snooze just mm. try these and experiment with these things in your life gradually the sattva becomes lighter and the darkness fades. Mm. I say to drug addicts, like when I see drug addicts, or the other day I saw uh, someone who was a masturbation addict, like I don't tell them to stop the addiction. I just give them the practices to bring in, which are sattvic, and there's obviously the spectrum of sattva. When sattva right. comes, which is the light, the darkness will fade. So rather than focusing on the negative, just bring the positive. And you know, you can, this is the point of adjusting to the person. You know, what's relevant for you? There's so much you can do and there's so so little simple things which you can do which will make a difference and start on that path. And in regards to digestion, it's it's key, you know. Like if you're digesting well, the rest of your body will will sort itself out. And it's it's not all about digestion, definitely. It's not all about food. There's lifestyle is a huge component. Mm. They are related, but you know, start with the principles of food, of of eating the, like the meal time, like eating your main meal at lunch and the lightest meal at dinner, 
and being mindful when you eat like it doesn't matter if you're eating the best organic ayurvedic food if you don't have consciousness um you you will switch on your parasympathetic your sympathetic your rest and uh, flight or flight response you want to switch on the parasympathetic the rest and digest so mm. be grateful for it and if you're eating ice cream or takeaway pizza whatever it is still have that full consciousness because then even your agni can turn that into nectar so mm. just some principles eating in season eating with this local foods and a simple one is just eating whole foods like don't mm. try avoid the packaged stuff you know if it's got a bunch of ingredients which if it's got any ingredient which you don't recognize just <laughs> stay with the whole food stay what's what's close to the source and yeah and i think you know when the way that i've approached because there are a bunch of questions in there but in regards to the masculinity the way that I've, and, and for me personally, it's something that I've been recently exploring as I've uh, arised to a man. <laughs> um, <laughs> only recently is what I would say um, by doing, you know, what's been powerful for me and what I think is powerful is, is men's groups. You know, what you're doing here of talking with men and speaking with other men and opening up and being vulnerable. And I think the main part for me has been connecting with nature because, as you said, we've, we're in a society where where men are so on their feminine side, they they don't know. Like, I mean, look, they they just don't have an experience of mas of of healthy masculinity. And I think, mm. as men, we have this primal instinct with within us to support others and support the women and the society and the community and you know chop wood and carry water and <laughs> you know hunt and forage like all those things it, it even of course we're not living off the land and we're not living as hunter gatherers but even if you can do little things like that that boosts your testosterone that boosts your masculinity um it, yeah so going going into the the bush or the forest and camping and just learning a bit of survival that that's one way i've seen to that's one technique you can increase testosterone and healthy masculinity Mm. of just getting them a bit more confident in their ability to survive and to provide for others and not mm. having to like oh my god i need my shelter i need like my food my phone so i can order food i need the shop like i don't know what how and now we're in a society where you know maybe you can't go to the shops <laughs> with the virus like you you can't get right. this you can't get what who who knows what's going to happen to your water? Like your government is heavily regulating your water. What's going to happen to your money? You know, is it going to become centralized? How, how, how much are you empowered to become self-sustainable and to be able to provide mm. from one another? That's masculinity. How mm. are you going to provide for your family when, you know, the only option of water you have is water full of chemicals or mm. the only way you can buy petrol or food from the grocery store is if you use a centralized currency where only if you are getting experimental gene therapy injected into you do you get that and you're monitored every single stage so this is kind of like this uh it's it's this femininity which is happening in in men and of course both men and women both masculine femininity is important to have both in a man but we definitely we're, we're losing our masculine and this is this is one way i've been exploring nice um, so yeah you know what i'm appreciating about what you're sharing a lot of things but i'm appreciating this point like experiment and you know those of us who have a more 
let's say a more religious orientation to our spirituality, that orientation, and I'm not suggesting this is a bad thing, but that orientation does take the sort of fun out of it. So like our approach is less experiential or experimental. And it's like more like, no religious, like this must be done no matter what. And it's not fun. And I'm not suggesting this is necessarily a negative thing, but I'm appreciating how you're saying, just kind of do the experiment and see that, just add these things to your life and see the joy and the addition. And then naturally that will, mm-hmm. you know, do away with or abrogate the negative stuff in, the, in our life. Um, it just seems hard to do that. It seems hard to, it seems hard to advise that to someone who's more religiously oriented to their practice. I mean, that's, that's one of the problems with religion in general is because so many of these people are doing these practices without, and as we said earlier, without the experience, without that experiential, they're just doing it because, you know, I come from a Jewish background and I, Mm. I, I've seen like, um, absolutely orthodox Jews doing their practice and praying every day and dressing with the payers and the long coats and everything. And it's funny because I spoke to someone who's, who was a rabbi and meant and lectures to Jews and he, he spoke to him and he goes, he, he was in the car. He's very popular in, uh, in the New York city with the, in the Jewish community. And it, and he had this guy with nine kids and all the payers and the big hats and everything. And he goes, can I speak to you, David? Mm-hmm. And he goes, David, I, I don't believe in God. But I'm doing oh, all these things, and God. so it's. I think a lot of these things is, you know, to be. To, I I don't like faith so much. Mm-hmm. I'm not a fan of faith. I'm a fan of direct experience. Mm-hmm. I think you say you you know you you don't enjoy these things. Of course, there's time for discipline, but you've got to enjoy that discipline, and you like doing that for. You can already feel. You know, again, we don't want to do something for an outcome. It's about the process. So if you're doing like a discipline because for 40 days I'm going to not eat chocolate or for 40 days I'm going to wake up every day and do Surya Namaskar at sunrise 13 times, it's hard. Um, it's, it's challenging, but I'm enjoying the process. I, I think, yeah, you got to, there should be that connection all the time to the, to the benefits and nice it does i mean i appreciate that because i do feel like i said earlier in response to what you were mentioning this uh, most of the vedic sciences do seem to take a more direct experiential approach to their processes and i feel that when those of us in the western world decide to embrace vedic paradigm that part gets lost in translation and we're just so used to a more religious orientation towards spirituality that it just, that's what we bring to the table. And yeah, it translates in ways that aren't inspirational and can tend to be problematic in our inspiration and, to continue. And that's again, like how you're metabolizing it. Like that's right. Exactly. Like exactly. How you, how you in taking that practice, which has actually, because it's so divine, it has an immense way of expressing itself in diversity through every different person, through every different situation that you're living. You know, it's not just black and white, do it this way. Some people teach that, but you should really get to know the essence of that practice and 
let it go through your unique self because you're so unique in the way that you're going to perform it. And yes, there might be rules and recommendations on how to practice it, but you know, do it in a way which which uplifts you and yeah, get a bit more creative perhaps in <laughs> how you can practice that in a way which which suits you. So Dylan, what what you're saying is if you're not experiencing joy then you're doing it wrong basically <laughs> that you should maybe reassess on how you're doing it mm. yeah yeah, yeah that's what i mean because i wouldn't i don't want to say wrong because it's you know there could be benefit as well but basically <laughs> you know my my, my teacher's teacher said like why suffer there should be no suffering like, wh why suffer ever? And if you're suffering because you have to wake up and do some chanting at 4 a.m. and you don't like it, why do it? it it's, yes, it's triggering beneficial things in your body, but if you're suffering from it, it's got to be doing worse. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's, what I, that's what I feel. <laughs> Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, he was, that's my teacher's teacher. He was always like that. He said, why ever suffer? When is there a thing? And he even once was speaking to this Buddhist, and there's a, there's a, there's a. They were saying there's a thing of um, some some Buddhist people. They're like, um, you should suffer, or something. Suffering will will bring some benefit, but when you look at the text, it said something about the authorship. Sorry, let me rephrase. It was desire. It was the desires. Uh, desires are bad. Desires are. If you desire, that is it. You have you have lost it, and you're not on the path to enlightenment. But with the text, what it really said is, if you are the authorship of your desire, mm -hmm. so you know we should not take authorship of any desire because essentially every single desire coming through us is the desire of greater intelligence, of cosmic intelligence, mm -hmm. and we should act on them. But we're not the author of them. Don't take authorship of them. So if I have a desire to go and buy some figs from the shop after this call um i'm not going to say like i have to do this this is it's my desire i want to do the figs but you know, who knows cosmic and if it's a really a desire that's aligned with nature um then maybe i'm going to meet someone who i'm going to help with their health who knows hmm. so yeah I'm I'm exhausted of all my questions, but I would like to say now in the future, it, I would be really interested of maybe I'll reach out to you personally about this, but working with you a little bit. And I, I'm fascinated by this 13 Agnes that you mentioned <laughs> earlier. That's really fascinating my mind because I'm like 13. I thought we only had the one or maybe mm -hmm. there were like two or three, but 13. And I'm interested to how, yeah, how that translates in my life as a holistic being. Yeah. And how that will help to improve my metabolizing or transforming my world inside and around me. It just like seems very fascinating. There, there's the, the the topic of the other 12 are a bit advanced in that you mm. need to understand a lot about Ayurvedic anatomy and physiology um. to understand these metabolic seats within the physiology where the mm. other 12 are. But then there's other aspects of Agni, like the eye is a seat of Pitta. Like, if you want to see that your eyes are fire, 
you just put some rose water pads, which is, by the way, a good remedy for any eye issues. Just get some cotton pads full of rose water and put them on your closed eyelids. You will feel how cooling the pads are and you will realize how hot your eyes are. Mm-hmm. And there's other seats of pitta, of fire, you know, the small intestine, the um, skin. The, the skin metabolizes what comes to it, right? How do you metabolize the sun? Mm-hmm. Is the sun burning you because you have poor agni in your skin? Or is the sun giving you the best beneficial rays and the vitamin D and the nervous system tingling pleasure that you get when you sunbathe? Okay. How do you optimize your skin agni? Abhyanga is one fantastic way. And, you know, it goes on. The liver is an important part of agni because the liver is that agni which is digesting anything you put into your mouth. Medications, all the pesticides which is creeping into your food. Heavy metals, which is all around. And these are some some agnes. Beautiful. I don't know, Corinne, I'm sorry, you have it. No, no, I, I just I just want to say um I've I've had some some really nice like you've given I feel like some you could say like <laughs> uh you've given us you've you've reminded me of certain very simple but very uh, essential core truths, you know, like forget about trying to renounce all the negative stuff, just like add the positive, you know, like if you pour, if you pour milk into the glass of venom, like continuously, gradually, there's just going to be milk, you know, um, eventually. So just, just keep adding the positive. I really like that. And another takeaway, just, yeah, just like find joy, find joy in what you do. Like just, you know, just, like the journey is is um is really important um so yeah i just i really appreciate that and you're just a really nice guy thank you for coming <laughs> thank you thank you guys that is a great takeaway <laughs> thank you so much dylan looking forward to connecting in the future i think for sure Jai. Hare Krishna. Thank you so much, everyone. Not so many live viewers, but a big shout out to all of you hearing the recording afterwards. Dylan, we are on, you know, a bunch of platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and most people actually listen to the show afterwards. So, hi, everyone. Thank you for being with us. Uh, if you have any uh, feedback, um, ariseheroicman at gmail.com or on Instagram, ariseheroicman, arise the honest man's podcast on Facebook. Dylan, if people would like to get in touch with you, if they'd like to check out Vital Veda, what is the website? How could they, maybe an email, I don't know, how would you want them to to check you out? Yeah, the website is vitalveda.com.au and there we have blogs, articles, um, and we're yeah, everywhere, Instagram, Vital Veda, and we have a podcast, the Vital Veda podcast, where we delve into aspects of the Veda. And if they want to do a consultation with me, they can do it through the book it through the website. Those are the main offerings. Awesome sauce. Yeah. Thank you, Dylan. Hare Krishna, everyone. Thank you. Hare Krishna. <laughs> right.